This is an ABC podcast. Those that have a go will get a go. Well, I've had a go, mate. I've worked for my life. National unemployment rate at the moment is, uh, I think it's 5.4. Sorry. I thought that election campaigns are tests of leadership, not tests of memory. Google it, mate. We had the debate. We worked through the hard issues. We came to an agreement. And I went to Glasgow. Welcome to the party room. The election's getting close. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Land. And I'm Frank Kelly from Afternoon Briefing on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And PK, it's been a big few days. The election is getting close. Voting's already started in the election. And how? Yeah, that's right, Fran. Pre-poll officially started this week, which was also a week dominated by the final two leaders' debates, in my view, um, far too close to each other, can I say. Too, too <laughs> close to each other. Just Too silly. close and too late in the night, both yeah, of them. Yeah, both of that. Um, the first one was quite shouty, Fran. Mm, the first one on Channel 9 was very, very loud. Last night's on Channel 7, we're recording this on Thursday morning, was very, very staid, a bit on the dull side even, though we did get some more facts, and that's always a good thing, I think, in a political debate at this point in a campaign. It was even quite friendly at times, but not all the time. Here's a taste. He's got a housing policy where if you get a wage rise, you've got to sell your house. Um, He's got a health policy that he hasn't been able to cost. He says it's costed, but it's uncosted. He's got an NDIS policy that he isn't able to explain. Now, we've seen over the course of this election campaign, one of the most fundamental things you need to know about as a Prime Minister is unemployment. He couldn't even tell you what the unemployment rate was, let alone the cash rate. Understanding the economy, particularly at a time like this, you can't risk it with someone who just simply has not had the experience in the serious financial jobs of government. We saw it with the bushfires. Uh, where he rejected the idea that there was any connection with climate change of of these events, uh, where he didn't turn up, and when he did turn up, uh, he turned up with an ad uh, with with a donate to Liberal Party button in the corner during that bushfire crisis. We saw similarly with the floods, a failure to act early enough and then partisan decisions based upon where support would go. We saw it, importantly, with the failure to order vaccines early enough. Just like he said, it wasn't... uh, He didn't hold a hose in the bushfires. In In the pandemic, he said that it wasn't a race to get vaccines. It was. So, PK, just a few lines that they've really run round and round quite a few times, but they got an airing, sometimes a little more heated than others in these debates. Yeah, look, um, I think the first one where voters asked the questions was probably the best one just because it was so... Uh, I think it's very, very the way things should be, that voters get to ask questions of leaders. I like the idea, but I thought the last one was the most civilised and the middle one, as you say, very shouty. Um, uh, I don't think two leaders' debates should be so close together either. I think, I, I know I said that, but I really think it's just repetitive and it doesn't give us the best sort of... Um, option for democracy, I think, um, you know, they should. It's a six-week campaign. It doesn't make sense to me that you have them that close together. Um, They did stick largely to their talking points in the final showdown. Uh, I thought that, um, you know, they they ended, of course, because they were asked to, you know, give each other a compliment and um, it was kind of uh, sort of warm and fuzzy, although there was a little sledge after the compliment that Scott Morrison gave to Anthony Albanese saying that he respects that he came from such humble 
humble beginnings, made his way to, you know, leader of a big political, old political party, uh, but then, but he's still not ready to be Prime Minister. Um, uh, Anthony Albanese complimented the Prime Minister on his commitment to mental health and headspace, but didn't actually sledge him at the end. So, you know, I thought that was kind of funny at the end. Ultimately, though, um, I think even though one of the things that's, that Labor's been attacked over this week is the way that they've handled this wages question, I'm going to say something controversial, but I think it's right. Labor ended up speaking a lot about wages in this last debate. Yes, Scott Morrison is trying to uh, paint Anthony Albanese as loose on things like the economy, but ultimately, when Labor is talking about wages, Fran, that's what they want to be talking about. It's actually on Labor's yeah. territory. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I actually think, you know, Scott Morrison was very strong last night with his economic messages and with those messages that he's been sort of honing all through about Anthony Albanese, you know, not being up to the job, not having the background for it, not understanding economics. I thought he made those points all very well, but it was interesting to me that he was pretty much all at sea on childcare, had really nothing to offer when he was asked directly about that. You know, not much to offer on national integrity. So on some of these issues that we know know, because the polls have been telling us for ages, that they're of concerns. And we saw that in the Sky News, the first debate, the people's debate. Uh, He really didn't have much to offer there. So I thought his performance was very strong on his turf. Um, I was interested that the 150 undecided voters gave the debate to Anthony Albanese. And I think that's why, because he had something to offer to people on these sort of uh, real life issues. And uh, the cost of living is one we're going to talk about in a minute, because PK, ultimately, these debates are about the theatrics of the campaign. The reality is this week, as in most weeks, it's the cost of living that people have been focused on. And it's the cost of living, I think, uh, and and who they decide favours them or works best for them on that front that they'll cast their vote for when it comes to it. Yeah. And that economic debate on the cost of living, we're going to get more into that with the ABC's Sabra Lane, who joins us very soon. But quickly, Fran, let's just go to the details here. I'm keen to get your thoughts on Anthony Albanese's decision this week to endorse an increase to the minimum wage in line with inflation, which is currently 5.1%. He started that same day speaking to me on RM Breakfast and saying that he wouldn't back the ACTU's 5.5% claim. But then at his press conference, this is what happened. You said you don't want people to go backwards. Uh, does that mean you would support a wage hike of at least 5.1% just to keep up with inflation? Absolutely. And here's some of the reaction that followed the next day. Anthony Albanese is a loose unit on the economy. What he said yesterday puts a chain reaction in place. Dominoes fall that lead to higher interest rates and higher costs of living. Scott Morrison is once again being loose with the truth. What we're talking about here is the uh, lowest paid workers in Australia. Those people who are really struggling with cost of living increases. So, Fran, the Prime Minister last week was telling us that Anthony Albanese doesn't have a magic pen with wages. Now he's going to to essentially wreck the economy. Which one is it? Well, you know, the fact is, PK, this absolutely moment from Anthony Albanese was a significant moment. The Labor always knew it would come. The leader was going around shouting as loudly as he could that a Labor government wouldn't support people going backwards and would make that clear in government to the submission it put to the Fair Work Commission's minimum wage case. Unlike the government, which doesn't use its submission to push for workers' wages to keep up with inflation. It's just, it's sort of neutral there. It doesn't take that position. This was Anthony Albanese's message. He said it many times. Eventually, they knew someone was going to ask, does that mean you'll support a rise 
in the minimum wage in line with inflation of 5.1%. So what else could he say but absolutely? Because if he tried to weasel away from it, then at that moment Scott Morrison would call him a weather vane. So he stepped into it, I think knowing he was stepping into a pile of mud, but in the knowledge, as you were saying earlier, it's better for an opposition leader to be talking about supporting a wage rise for the lowest paid than it is for a government to be arguing that low wages should be kept lower than inflation, which is effectively where Scott Morrison finds himself. So both sides are still slithering around this. I spoke to the shadow treasurer, Jim Chalmers, on afternoon briefing, and he said, quote, the mechanism is still to be determined. Um, and what he means is by which Labor, you know, will make its position clear in its submission. The government's trying to suggest that putting any number in the submission would be messing with the independence of the commission. Really, there's a lot. The Howard said government it, put numbers well, they on did. their submissions. They did. That was a long time ago. The Fair Work Commission's differently um, structured now. But yes, they did. They did used to either often support industry group submissions or argue for a bit higher or so they certainly did used to the current convention this government doesn't and uh, it's no kind of threat to the independence of the commission at all that's a bogus line I think but um, you know I think the bottom line is like you said earlier for Labor as long as they're defending an argument for for putting up the wages of lowest paid, they feel like they're in a, a great place going into the final week of this campaign. Well, yeah. I mean, so, the, and that's why I think that Anthony Albanese still won a debate like last night, because when he frames it as, if you, you know, if you get away from the arcane, like, process question, the procedural question, which we get in the weeds on, and you just distill it to the, the lowest paid workers in Australia, $1 an hour more. Yep. Two cups of coffee a day is the other line he's using. Mm. If you distill it like that, then it's really, you know, it, it's product differentiation and a powerful argument from Albanese. And he actually, in a campaign where there's been the point that they don't have any big ideas, well, he's kind of really putting himself out there, right, on something which is a key labour identity question too about whether they'll stick up for workers when it comes to wages. And so, yes, the the, the I'm not saying there's no risk for Albanese because I wasn't born yesterday. <laughs> there's one more week to go. The Prime Minister will throw everything at saying that this is irresponsible economic management. But at the same time, by doing that, he has to argue against uh, the minimum wage going up to keep up with inflation for the poorest workers. And I just don't think that's a particularly easy thing to do either, Fran. No, it's not. And he's sort of struggling to hit that line. So the only narrative he's, he's falling back on, we heard it very strongly from him last night, is that Anthony Albanese doesn't understand the implications of his words. So when he goes off half-cocked, or what was that quote from the Prime Minister yesterday? He, I think he, he said he unzips his head yeah. and lets it all fall out on the the table is how he put it. Um, he's just trying to use it to strengthen that line that Anthony Albanese doesn't understand the implications of his utterances on the economy. He said, well, that'll force up inflation, that'll put up people's interest rates, and they're going to be worse off. So he's trying to prosecute that line. But I think the strongest of the two is he's arguing against putting people's wages up a dollar an hour. Fran, we're recording this, as we say, on a Thursday morning, as we do, and we have nine days uh, as we're recording. You might listen, and it's fewer days uh, until polling day. So we're well and truly into very much the last part of this campaign. The polls are showing the trend is still with Labor, but we know this election will be a seat-by-seat battle um, because we know we know that clearly both, both sides see it this way. This seems like the perfect time to bring in our guest, who really needs no introduction, the ABC's Chief Election Analyst, Anthony Green. Let's do it. 
ABC Chief Elections Analyst, Anthony Green. Welcome to the party room. Good morning, or good afternoon if other people oh. are listening. Yeah. <laughs> well, whatever time of day they're tuning in, Anthony, it's great to have you with us. Anthony, nine days out, so, you know, we've been talking to you right across all the ABC platforms for the whole length of this campaign, looking at, you know, trying to check out how many seats need to shift, what seat, sort of seats they're in. Nine days out, have we narrowed down key seats or key states? Has anything, in your view, changed much, become clearer in the in the five weeks of this election campaign? Um, I've gone back and reread my re- previews that I wrote before the election and I, I haven't seen anything to change my opinion at the start of the campaign. You can just line up the seats at any election and you say, um, for a given swing, which ones will fall? Now, some may fall, some may not, but essentially it's the same list of seats. I still see the same seats being mentioned over and over again. Well, nothing to tell from the number of times that one leader or the other goes back to visit a certain seat or anything like that? Oh, I think you can overanalyze things. I just think if Labor wins 53% of the vote, they will win a whole bunch of seats. I think the only question is whether there isn't much of a swing in Queensland or not. It looks like Queensland may be an outlier. We'll wait and see. But uh, that that would be, I think, my my, my um, one thing I'd I'd say is that Queensland may be different. So, uh, but every, and, everything. And what does I've it seen, mean if I can interrupt? If yeah. Queensland's different to the sort of macro outcome? Mm. Well, well, not a lot really, because for Labor to win any seats in Queensland, they need a big swing. Uh, well, let's put that question another way. Can Labor win government if it doesn't pick up any seats in Queensland? Because currently, what I'm hearing is they're not actually that hopeful of winning any seats and maybe, maybe one. If they don't win any seats in Queensland, there's still enough seats in the rest of the country to win. That's really interesting. Okay, let's look at a few specific examples that are sort of tantalising to <laughs> to analyse. We did see the Prime Minister pop up in Benelong uh, this week with a promise, a very big promise, of a 50% contribution for the $220 million bridge in the electorate. Now, how much is Benelong in play? And, and even a seat like North Sydney, Labor is thinking that, you know, it has a chance. Is, are they both sort of live things happening? Well, Ben, like, I think one of the difficulties is people look at a margin and just take it as gospel. That's where the seat sits. When John Howard lost Ben Long, it was on a margin of 4.4%, right? It's got a margin, I think, about 69 or something like that now. Um, the boundaries haven't changed in that time. Um, what, what you're seeing is that John Alexander's retiring. In the last two elections, Labor hasn't put a lot, a lot of effort into the seat. Uh, now John Alexander's retiring, Labor's putting more effort into the seat. They're running a well-known local in Jeremy Lexile, who's the, the mayor of Ryde, has run in the area three times at state level. So he's got quite, he's quite well-known in the district. Uh, they're putting more effort in, therefore the seat's more competitive and the Liberals have got you know, another three years of baggage from being in government. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why Benelong is a seat that comes into play and it's to do with the fact that, I suspect, I think people keep taking the margins from the last election as gospel and to be honest, there were some re- very odd swings at the last election. In my view, Labor basically lost control of the last election campaign. And things like Clive Palmer and One Nation preferences, they had a higher vote and there were stronger preferences to the coalition last time. Now, it didn't change any seats, but I think it's changed the margins in the number of seats we look at. I think one of the most significant differences between this election and last time is we are yet to see the media... The, the, the advertising dominated by Clive Palmer attacking the Labor Party. We are seeing some preference deals, though, and I know that some... I've spoken to some senior Labor people who are very nervous about the fact that uh, UAP does seem to have decided to send preferences more the Coalition's way than it was indicating at first. If, how, much, how much difference is that going to make? Well, that in, in 2013, the UAP sent... The United Parties and then was sent all 
preferences to the LNP at number two, the coalition at number mm. two, and got mm. 54% preference flows. In 2019, they did exactly the same thing and the preference flows were 65%, so 10% higher with no difference in what was on the heart of our card. The difference was the advertising spent. This time, United Australia are not putting the coalition number two everywhere this time. It's a bit more varied, maybe three, four, it's around the ticket. To me, when you're looking at preferences and the effect they will have, you have to look at how they're different from last time. So people say, oh, Greens have done a preference deal. Well, it was exactly the same last time. If, if, if the preferences are going to, to the LNP in Queensland everywhere, well, that's roughly the same as last time. There hasn't been a change in the preferences in terms of how to vote, but there has been a big change to the attacks on Labor in the advertising. And I think that will have a... People, it's not how to vote necessarily that cause people to give their preferences in a particular way. It's an influence. But by, from all the work I've done, most people tend to make up their own mind. Mm. Most people have a view of the affinity of another party to their own and that's the way they tend to do preferences. You know, and, and I think that's what's the big driver. So, of course, everyone's concerned about every single vote. As far as I'm concerned, I'd be surprised if UAP preferences and One Nation preferences are as strong to the coalition. Because they're not being time. reinforced by that massive advertising that's campaign right. this most time people from Clive Palmer. S- they won't see a hat of vote for these parties. Mm. I loved um, your tweet, can I say, saying that the one thing that you can be sure of is that um, uh, Craig Kelly won't be Prime Minister because there's a full-page ad in the papers today. They've spent a lot of money for a full-page ad in The Australian saying Craig Kelly will be the next Prime Minister. And I find that I, that's a lot of money to spend for an ad like that. Well, that's interesting, isn't it, too, because then does it make it's clearly not going to happen, so does it make people doubt all the other ads too, which, of course, some of them are equally far-fetched in my view. Uh, there have been some truly <laughs> far-fetched ads, you know, that, that suddenly interest rates are going to be, there's going to come into government, cap interest rates, bring back superannuation from overseas. None of those things are going to happen. I think uh, last night I saw on Channel 9 News in Sydney, uh, this, I was interested to see whether this would happen, but they suddenly revived an ad from about early 2019, which was attacking Labor as being a front for the Chinese. So I'm fascinated to know if this is some last minute red scare, China scare campaign, but um, it's the sort of thing the Liberal Party wouldn't run something like that, but Clive Palmer might. Mm. I want to pick your brain about another emerging thing in this campaign, and that's these so-called teal candidates in the sort of uh, Liberal heartland, uh, challenging Josh Frydenberg, Trent Zimmerman, others. (sighs) A lot has been talked up about their chances. What what is your take? Well, the first thing I'd say is there's some other than teals around. So watch the independent in Nichols, watch the uh, independent running against Christina Keneally and Fowler and Jack Dempsey, who's an independent running in Hinkler in Queensland. So there's a couple of others as well. Um, their chances, look, their chances are good. I mean, um, we're doing some work with the Vote Compass data and if you line up all the electorates based on whether people name the economy as the biggest issue, it lines up on the left to right scale Labor to coalition. That's how it lines up. When you line up the electorates on whether they name climate change as the most important issue, the electorates line up completely differently. And at the top of the list, you get a whole bunch of inner city electorates like Kuyong, like North Sydney, where the Liberal vote is high. And at the opposite end of the spectrum, you get all those mining seats and you get seats, good, solid, working-class Labor electorates like Spence and Fowler appear appear at that end. And the reason is people at that end of the spectrum are naming other issues is more important. Some of them, like the mining seats, say climate change is is a disaster for Mm. them. But in other seats, like your fathers and your Spencers, they are naming other issues in climate, usually cost of living and those sorts of issues. What you've got with the climate change issue is a cross-cutting issue. It's an issue which cuts across the traditional vote. It's a different axis, a different way of lining up the electorates. And um, Peter Credlin wrote an article in The Australian this morning 
pointing out something similar um, about more about how you address a campaign, saying that we're worried, you know, liberals are too worried about these inner city electorates and stuff, not enough about running on these issues to appeal to Labor voters and others. Well, the data from Vote Compass backs up what she's saying. I think the difficulty always comes up on this is if you adopt a policy position to win an election, do you end up with a policy position which is which is difficult to deal with? I mean, can the government just ignore climate change as an issue given how important it is in the international agenda? So it's a bit hard for them. I mean, yeah. they felt they had to neutralise the issue last year. So you can't now turn around and uh, no, run, but, run the opposite way. But how about the long term? I mean, this is like an existential issue for them, right? Like... Um, you can't just give away seats like that. You can't give away seats ever, can you? Well, like especially that? a seat like Kuyong. Yeah, but it's, but it's the same as the Labor Party. You know, they can't just give away Hunter. They can't just give away Capricornia. But they're suffering the same the same issue. There is that it, the, these seats are being affected by another issue, which changed your alignment. And you're quite right. The Liberal Party. It, it's a bit like when Labor lost Melbourne for the first time. They were losing seats to the Greens, which is where the Labor has some of its strongest branches. And the Liberal Party suffers the same problem with these teal independent seats. Is these are areas where the Liberal Party have their strongest membership, the biggest fundraising measures. If you lose those seats, it's the same as Labor losing some of those inner city seats to the Greens. Uh, but it is remarkable to think that you know, we could come out of this election with the three Liberal seats overlooking Sydney Harbour, none of them held by the Liberal Party. That would be remarkable. Um, Anthony, before we let you go, there's another battle, of course, on election night for the Senate. Um, I personally always struggle to see where the Senate's going to go and what it's doing, but I know you're good at it. Will we see the Greens or One Nation or Independence or potentially Clive Palmer, he's running, let's not forget, potentially hold the balance of power? How do you see the Senate battles? Are you watching anything in particular? We won't get a picture on the night because they don't count pre-poll Senate votes. So the Senate vote will only get to about 30 or 40% on the night. So you'll have to watch that on the week after. Um, there's a couple of states to watch. Uh, Tasmania, where the Liberals have three seats up for re-election, they'll struggle to get the third up. And um, Erica Betts is trying to run this funny below-the-line campaign. Yeah, I, I hear there's signs everywhere across yeah. the aisle. But it, but the, in the end, the problem is he need they need enough vote for three senators. I mean, if if Erica Betts get elected instead of number two, you still only get two seats. The other state to watch is South Australia, which is two two and two Xenophon ex Xenophon candidates up for re-election. Can Labor or the Liberals get that third seat? If Labor gets a third seat or the Greens get a third seat, it sort of changes the balance a bit. Western Australia, can the Liberals keep three up in Western Australia? Um, Queensland. The, the Queensland, key, we've got Clive Palmer v Pauline Hanson. Well, we? the, the key issue with the Senate is normally there are six seats and because well, they, they really should change it back to electing an odd number. But anyway, you elect an even number, you get basically three seats for the left, three seats for the right. And the default position in Australia normally now is three from the Coalition, two from Labor, one from the Greens. Now, if you can push the left-right vote further one way or the other, you can get four from one side of politics, which is what happened in Queensland last time where you got one Labor, one Green, three LNP and Malcolm Roberts from One Nation. Now, the key thing for the coalition is to try and keep that 4-2 split in Queensland, which would make it very difficult for Labor to get a majority. If that goes back towards more a 3-3 split, look, basically there will be two LNP members elected in Queensland, one Labor, and then you've got a Labor and a Green candidate going for one or two seats and there's one or two seats on the other side of politics, which is being fought between Amanda Stoke from the LNP, Clive Palmer, Campbell Newman and Pauline Hanson. Now, I happen to think I think Pauline Hanson will easily win that seat, uh, that extra seat. And then so then it's between those other candidates whether they can win a fourth seat to the right of politics or if they don't, then you'd get probably get two Labor and one Green. Really and, interesting. And that's a real – that's – 
there are so few of these ones which break other than 3-3 that it affects the whole balance of the Senate. Mm. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Hey, so, Anthony, we've run out of time, but you're going to call it early, do you think, or is it going to be a late night? Uh, the, the, what I always say is that we either, by 7.30, we know what's happening. We either know if one side or other has won or we know whether we're going to have to wait longer. So it's either 7.30 or midnight. Yes. Uh, hopefully we shouldn't have to be as long this time because um, they have changed the way they count pre-poll votes. Uh, pre-poll votes are a problem because you've got maybe 10,000, 15,000 votes to count in a single pre-poll centre. The hardest thing to do when you start counting is to take all the ballot papers out and unfold them. It takes forever. So they've given themselves they're going to start opening the boxes at four in the afternoon to do the sort and then they'll start counting from six. So rather than being there, you know, all those pre-polls arriving at midnight or 1am, they might arrive at 10 or 11 this time. Now that's good. Trying to get all the extra staff to do this on a Saturday night is very difficult, yeah. especially in a very tight lead market. Most people who are in the casual market are out working in pubs where they get more money. Yeah. So it may be the commission can't count all the pre-polls on that because they can't get the staff. That's interesting. And the postals aren't counted on the night. They'll put some in the next day. But uh, basically the tight labour market makes it very difficult to count all the pre-polls. Oh, I might try and get a job at the AEC just so I can make sure the result comes early. Goodness <laughs> gracious. Joking. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you. Good luck on election night, Thanks. Anthony. Thanks. I think I can hear our next guest now, Fran. I can hear her arriving. Oh, me too, PK. Sabra. Sabra. Sabra Lane, presenter of AM and honorary life member of the National Press Club and general legend. Welcome to the party room. Oh, hello, PK. Never mind me as I sashay in with my cocktail in hand. Of course, it's non-alcoholic. Cocktail. It's great to have you with us again, Sabra. Sabra, this week we've been talking about it already. The cost of living has, has risen up again. Anthony Albanese finds himself talking about, you know, Labor's push to lift the minimum wage and if it was in government it would be making it very clear the Fair Work Commission that it thinks wages should go up the level of inflation which is of course 5.1 percent. That's unleashed the Prime Minister again with another scare campaign but where do you think this has ended up this week? Well, I mean, it's ended up with the government still trying to press the opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, on this quite hard because I think the reason why they're going particularly hard on this is that we now are in to the pointy end of the season where people are beginning to vote. Uh, We've got 10 days of campaigning left and there's still a large proportion of voters who still have not made up their minds about who they're going to vote for. And uh, party insiders are telling me that that figure really hasn't budged since voting started. And they expected that that figure would start to come down, but they say it's not. And with people very dissatisfied with both uh, Scott Morrison, they don't like the way, you know, majority perception is the way that he's run the country. And they're still unconvinced by Anthony Albanese. They don't know enough about him and they're unsure about him. The government sees this as a crack in the Labor campaign, if you like, and they're pushing him really hard, despite the fact that we've had different language from the Prime Minister about Anthony Albanese on the subject of the economy. Mm. He's previously said that he doesn't have a magic pen when it comes to lifting wages. Contrast that to now... Mr. Morrison saying that this, uh, his agreement with the word, one word absolutely, that he'd like to see wages increase or match inflation, which you point out is running at 5.1%, makes him, quote unquote, a loose unit. Mm, a wrecker. So, a wrecker, a loose unit and someone that you cannot trust with the economy. So they're pressing really hard on that point. Yet 
I've spoken to Labor people, insiders, and they say they're happy to be talking about wages from now until polling day because wages have been flat for people for a really long, long time. And for them to be arguing that wages actually keep pace with inflation, well, what's wrong with that? That that (laughs) workers actually get in their pockets what they're actually paying out for other things. The poorest workers in the country. So, Sabra, how's that landing in Tassie where you are? There's a few seats up for grabs. Bass Braddon, Bass, one of the most marginal seats in the country. Lions, too, in play, according to both sides that I speak with. I mean, there's a a fair bit of um, low-paid poverty population in parts of Tasmania. Especially in the north. Especially in the north. So how do you see this debate playing in there? Well, it it will play strongly. Um, Bass and Braddon, as you say, they are swinging seats and they tend to go with the, the rest of the country when it comes to swings. And there are a lot of people who are, you know, paid the kind of money that we're talking about. We're talking about the minimum wage, $20.33, a 5.1% increase. We're talking about that would be $21.37 increase. It doesn't Mm. sound like much, but across the board, uh, you know, that's going to play out strongly. I've been talking to people on all sides about what's been happening up in Bass and Braddon. Cost of living is the number one issue, closely followed by health issues. So these, you know, they're crucial bread and butter issues and they play really strongly in those seats. Um, I'm getting a sense that the Libs are are feeling very confident about holding uh, Braddon, not so much Bass, even though their candidate there, um, Bridget Archer, has, you know, she's crossed the floor on a couple of Mm. issues uh, against the government. They're they're feeling not so strong there. And some, in fact, even though they were talking a big game, Fran, on Lions, some Libs feel that that's, you know, not within their grasp anymore. So it's mm. it's sort of interesting the way that things are playing out. Yeah. Yeah, we'll be watching Tasmania very closely on the night. Look, Sabra, it was really another messy week for Scott Morrison on the issue of defending his captain's pick in Warringah, Catherine Deves, and her controversial and offensive comments on transgender people. On Sky News, uh, she was... Spoken to by Chris Kenny and Ms. Deves walked away from her apology for claiming transgender people were mutilated uh, by having gender affirming surgery. Um, now, I've spoken to medical experts that have contested these views, including Dr. Fiona Bishop, who I spoke to on RM Breakfast this week. And once again, Scott Morrison refused to criticise the Warringah candidate, saying the issue that she was raising about surgery for children was concerning and, and troubling. But he seemed to get some of even the facts wrong, um, and I've done a bit of a fact check on this this week. Uh, but why is this in, in the debate? Nikki Saver has written a really interesting column suggesting that the Prime Minister's office is even involved in this campaign. For Deves, the Prime Minister's office denies it. But why are we still talking about Deves and these issues? Why are we still talking about it? There are people within the Liberal Party, PK, who wonder why the Prime Minister is raising this issue right now. Uh, pointedly, I've had someone who describes themselves as socially conservative. They're scratching their heads. Uh, They cannot understand why the Prime Minister has raised this right now. They say this issue is not one they want to be discussing right now in the heat of an election campaign. Um, This is an issue that is affecting the moderate Liberals, especially those who are facing the teal independent challenge in in Kooyong, in Goldstein, up in Sydney, Wentworth, North Sydney. 
Um, today, as we're recording this, I note that to the uh, Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, whose seat is, is Koo Yong and one of those under challenge, has distanced himself from that kind of language. He said he would have used different language to what the Prime Minister has used in this case and that he'd been pretty outspoken and strong in his criticism of the way that Catherine Deves has approached this issue. And Mr Frydenberg's not on his own. Um, there are some who believe that this is something of a dog whistle, um, you know, with a foghorn to uh, conservatives who feel that the Prime Minister hasn't delivered enough for them in the past three years. They think it's more to do with trying to reassure them that he is concerned about these issues, that he still feels strongly about these things. And, you know, it's something for the base to keep them on side. Mm. Well, but the cost, mm. the cost could be, could be quite cost. huge. Yes, yeah, something for the base to keep them on side. Um, it, there's a whole lot of polling coming out at the moment, Sabra. Um, and as we record this on Thursday, we got the YouGov poll, which is quite startling really at this point in the campaign, shows Labor on track to win a majority with 80 seats. It's a very big headline, just nine days out. We don't know if it's right or wrong or if it's a bit right or a bit wrong. But do you think of a, a headline like this, a poll like this, which is, you know, f- flawed in some of its uh, methodology because it's, it's across so many seats, but is it likely to have an impact on the way people vote as, as you know, they read that Labor's in the box seat when they go in to cast their pre-poll? Look, uh, Fran, I'm not so sure. Um, I'm still not convinced that a lot of people are focused on what's happening. Uh, and again, I also go back to that conversations I've been having with people the last 48 hours where they say they're befuddled as to why there are still so many people who are undecided and they're wondering what the circuit breaker is going to be for those people to make up their minds. Um, I'm not sure that polling is going to do that for them. Um, There'll be issues that people will care about and will want to vote on. Yeah, Fran, it's one of, one of those things. I, I hate this phrase, but only time will tell and we will know come Saturday week. <laughs> yeah, we've got to be really cautious still, I think, about polling. Yes, some of the methodology has oh, yeah. changed, but we're still... Uh, yeah. I'm still wary of polling done in, in, in individual seats, to, though they tend to have large margins of error and, you know, for mm. that reason, I, I tend not to rely on them. I think that's right. Look, just moving to another issue, which is really going to end up focusing the final final, you know, week and a bit. Uh, Labor is not releasing their election policy costings until after the Liberal campaign launch, which is on the weekend, on Sunday. Uh, yes, it's late in the campaign, but, you know, that's that's the way it works sometimes. Um, now, it's suggested Labor's deficit projections will be higher than the government's by $20 billion or, or more. <sighs> they are trying to really put the pressure on Labor on this now. Is it unusual that it's this late, um, Sabra, or is this kind of standard? Well, for oppositions, it's become standard. And I think they can point to previous coalition oppositions where they've waited until the electronic blackout period to release their costings. So I know that's no excuse because it's a thing that really annoys voters. Why do they leave it so late? Well, they leave it late because they usually point to the other side and say they've done it as well. It's not great, especially when people are looking for... People are angry. That's the other thing. People, uh, the cranky factor among in the electorate, 
people talk to me about, people are pretty cranky and they mm. want to see they want to see a different style of politics and politician. And perhaps that's why so many of them are flirting with independents and smaller parties. And when will the major parties get a wake-up call for that? Maybe it's coming. Who knows? Well, who knows? As you say, put it so well, only time will tell, Sabra. <laughs> Sabra, thank you so much for joining us here Thanks, on The Party Sabra. Room. It's great. You're welcome. Fran PK, you're welcome. See you, Sabra. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. And it's time for our question time because there's no parliament at the moment. There's only the party room. And we've got a question from Kermy who writes, just listening to your live The Party Room podcast from Canberra. You said Rudd had a big idea with the apology, but Elbow has no big ideas. Don't you consider Elbow's promise to progress the voice to parliament from the Uluru statement from the heart as a big idea? Well, fair question, Kermie. I think what what PK was saying there is that this is an idea that's already been canvassed significantly in the parliament uh, with parliamentary committees and uh, parliament-led consultation um, over the past few years. So it's not an idea that Labor sort of has taken up on its own. Now, yes, Anthony Albanese is committing to going further, significantly further than a Morrison government, that's for sure, because they've flip-flopped on whether they'll go to a referendum in this term. Obviously, they didn't do that. Um, and they're still not promising it, and they've only come down on the side of voice to government, not voice to parliament, which is very different. Yeah, legislated. So constitutional recognition, that would be a major step. Anthony Albanese is committing to it. It's true. It just feels, I suppose, that it's not an idea that he's sort of picked up and run with on his own. It's already been running for quite a while. But, you know, perhaps it's a fair point, PK. What do you reckon? Yeah, I I was, uh, you know, at at a thing like that, just to be clear, you're kind of talking. Some of it, of course, we, we plan. But, you know, a lot of it is off the cuff. And what I meant was big, grand, radical things like the last election where they lost and they've walked back from those kinds of things, you know, um, transforming the tax system, franking credits, capital gains. That's what I meant. Um, is this a big idea? Yeah, it is. I think it's a really important thing, actually. I, I, I'm very passionate about it. And I think people know that about me and I have been for a really long time. And I think it's laudable that um, the Labor has got behind it. And in fact, I spoke to Anthony Albanese on RM Breakfast this week, put this to him because I do think it's such an important issue. And he said he wants to do it in this term of a, of mm. a Labor government. Yeah, if that's elected. his commitment. It's a firm commitment now. Yeah, so that's that's a good thing. And and I know that he plans and he said it, but I, got, I know quite a bit about this story and I know he plans to reach out to whoever is the opposition leader, might be Josh Frydenberg if he can retain his seat, and try and get a bipartisanship to move forward on this, make it a priority. So, yeah, it's a big idea. It's a good idea. Um, I don't find it a radical idea. I don't think it's a particularly contentious idea, and yet it has been so hard to land, and that just shows that constitutional change is always vexed. Mm, always hard. But good point, Kumi, and thanks for listening to the podcast. That was such a great – it was a great time there in Canberra at the Canberra Theatre. That's it for us. Send your questions in. We love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag, hashtag the party room, or email your questions to partyroom at abc.net.au. You can leave reviews for us, help us, you know, be a popular podcast that more and more ears can um, listen to. And uh, and also, of course, on the ABC Listen app, follow and us as well. speaking of ears, you can bring more than your ears to a party room live that's coming up at Sydney Rose Festival. You can, bring your, too, your, you can bring your whole self. Um, it's, it's, it's the party room, but it's live, therefore it's live and dangerous. We'll be right there in Sydney. And if you happen to be there, you can ask us and our guests the, some really difficult 
tricky political questions. Yeah, get them. We get, love that. Get really hard questions there. Uh, that's right. Um, it was so much fun in Canberra. It was a great night if you were there. Um, thanks for coming along. And thank you if you're coming along to the Sydney Writers Festival. If you haven't yet thought about it, think about it. You can go to the website and get tickets to the Party Room Live at Carriage Works. It's Thursday, May 19 at 6pm. Just 48 hours before election night. So don't ask us to make any predictions because we will look foolish 48 hours later. Uh, well, you know, they will ask us. So we've got to be ready for that, PK, let's be honest. Well, That's... I plan to duck and weave like a politician. <laughs> exactly. That's it from us this week. We'll be back in your feeds next week. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.